Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Ken Burns is one of the most iconic filmmakers of our time. His miniseries, The Vietnam War, was seen by over 39 million viewers on PBS. We were friends with a young couple, and it was only after 12 years that the two wives were talking, found out that we both had been Marines in Vietnam. Never said a word about it, never mentioned it. And the whole country was like that. The Civil War, along with many other films, is shown in American history courses across the country. The Civil War was fought in 10,000 places, from Valverde, New Mexico, and Tullahoma, Tennessee, to St. Albans, Vermont, and Fernandina on the Florida coast. More than three million Americans fought in it, and over 600,000 men 2% of the population died in it. His latest documentary is a two-part series called The American Buffalo. Uncounted numbers of wounded buffalo wandered off and died. So did motherless calves. It was a business proposition for them. A hide's a hide. If you shoot the mother of a calf, What the hell? But those calves, I would venture every one of them died. They don't survive if they don't have their mother. It was an ugly, ugly business. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we look at the power that documentary films have to shed light on stories that more people need to hear. Later in the show, we'll hear from one of the producers of the film, Free Chol Su Lee. It tells the story of a man who's convicted of a murder that he didn't commit, and the movement to win his release. But wrongful imprisonment is only one part of his story. Up first is Ken Burns. He's directed and produced more than 30 films and series. He's been nominated for two Academy Awards and won five Emmys. Ken, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. You know, we are approaching the 50th anniversary of your very distinguished career in this field. And it goes back to the 1981 film that you directed, Brooklyn Bridge, which was nominated for an Academy Award. Talk to us a little bit about your distinctive style and what you see as the key elements of that style. Well, I think that style, if we could sort of set some terms of grammar, would be just the authentic application of technique. Everybody has dozens and dozens of things which they may use to do it. I think if it's done honorably and authentically, then it becomes a kind of style. My interest was first in feature films, got directed when I went to Hampshire College uh, in Amherst, Massachusetts in the early 70s to documentary. And within that, I got drawn to doing things in American history. And 
as such, I needed to take the single image, which the still photographers who were my teachers reminded me was sort of the DNA of, of stuff and figure out a way to wake them up. Like how, how do you trust that that photograph from the 19th century, an arrested moment of a particular thing, whether that horse-drawn carriage is going across the, the, the scene, whether the cannon are firing or the troops are tramping or the bat is cracking. And so I started developing a way visually to sort of energetically explore the surface of old photographs, not just hold them at arm's length, but sort of get inside and not just look at them and take them apart, but to hear them and ask those questions uh, that would then be answered on the sound track with effects and music and not just a third person narrator, which is traditional, but a chorus of first person voices that would sort of give you a sense of how people lived back then, the love letters, the journals, the diaries, the newspaper accounts. And so all of that, you know, combined with dozens and dozens of other things, sort of made up the way in which I was trying to will uh, that past moment alive. I think the great arrogance that we in the present have is that because we're here and the past isn't, that somehow we know more and we don't. And so I, I'm always trying to remind people that human nature remains the same, that people, no one is perfect and no one is, is you know, completely villainous. And how do you uh, present a history of, in my case, the United States that's complex and inclusive and diverse rather than the kind of top-down version of our past, you know, the sequence of presidential administrations punctuated by wars, kind of the great men, capital G, capital M theory. And so my work has been to sort of kind of to lift the, the the shackles to remove the shackles of that kind of, of of limited view of history and try to share a much broader one that doesn't exclude anyone's it just pulls the camera back if you will and shows more what i think is so powerful about that technique and, and the authenticity of that technique is that as you say it adds layers it adds texture it adds context it really challenges us to go beyond what we see as the straightforward, simplistic view of history, right? Here's the path and we think we know it. But you bring in elements and voices that often get overlooked, but also allows them to, in some ways, arrest and indict what we think we know about that history. And the other piece that I think is so critical here is that your work has introduced us to voices that may not be new to some, but put them into that historical space with an authenticity and authority. That's critical. And one of the voices that has always stood out to me is your interview with James Baldwin, who I think is this amazing American figure that too often gets overlooked or misunderstood. Liberty is the individual passion or will to be free. But this passion, this will is always contradicted by the necessities of the state. Everywhere. Well, as long as we've heard of mankind, as long as we've heard of states. I don't know if it'll be like that forever. What is it like for you as you think about your work and the progeny of your work? What is it like to be in conversation with those voices, but to also be able to put voices in concert together? Yeah, that's it. You just nailed, you know, hit the nail on the head. That's why... I get up in the morning. That's why when I put my head on the pillow at night, I want to 
feel like I've made a film better. There's, I'm incredibly greedy for that process. And a lot of that process is speaking to extraordinary interviews, uh, interviewees to de- dive deep into a story to sort of expose the much more um, interesting to me, complex and often contradictory aspects of our story without in any way diminishing um, the sort of the power, the inspirational power of it. And, and I think people presume that you can't have one or the other, that it either has to be some old version of that top-down thing, uh, and that if the pendulum swings, it can only be a kind of unforgiving revisionism. It, it isn't. You know, Winston Marsalis, who I had a great uh, conversation with for our series on the history of jazz, said, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. If you can tell a good story, you will always be confronted with that. And in fact, in our editing room, we have an, a little neon sign in lowercase cursive that says it's complicated. <laughs> There's not a filmmaker in the world that when a scene is working, you wanna leave it alone. But I've spent the last nearly 50 years figuring out how to open up that scene. It may not be as good as it was before, but it's truer and more accurate. So when you have an opportunity to interview someone of James Baldwin's stature, who can essentially throw a completely different light on a subject, in this case, I was making a film about the Statue of Liberty, and he had a very devastating comment about it, but he thought that the the Statue of Liberty meant nothing to black people, that it was a bitter joke, that in fact, you know, it, its back was to America. And yet at the same time, he then elaborated and said, in some ways, many of us are willing slaves to money or hatred or other things. And he expanded the notion of what it might be to be an enslaved person to a whole set of not just physical and societal conditions, but also psychological and emotional ones. And his, you know, I conducted this interview 40 plus years ago, and it still has a kind of vibrancy for me as if, you know, you'd said, well, actually, you just did that last week. And I go, okay. Yeah, because he, he brought a kind of urgency and passion to the moment, which he didn't have to do. Uh, He was teaching at Hampshire College. I'd gone back there. I'd been graduated uh, for a while. And and we met in a classroom. It wasn't the best shot in the world. And yet he, as so many people that we've interviewed, the hundreds of people that we interviewed, left a kind of indelible mark. I don't think just in the films that we've made from them, but in me. I'm listening to you recount that conversation, and I feel like I'm there in the classroom with you. And I'm imagining, you know, who we know James Baldwin today may not have been the way that people really appreciated the depth of his insight, the way that he could critically talk about the United States, but also talk about the hope, the promise, and the possibility of the United States, that if we could make real on that democratic dream, not the American dream, how far we could be. And I see that as a continuing element throughout much of your work, that yes, it's about the difficult pieces. Yes, it's about the challenges. But there's also about the beauty of possibility that continues to be a part of the American story. I know that this next question is going to feel like asking you, who's your favorite child? So I'm going to apologize in advance. (laughs) But I do wonder, 
Is there a particular interview that you've done over the course of your career where you say, much like James Baldwin, this has really had an imprint on me, not just my work, but on who I am as a person and as a filmmaker? I'm, I'm so happy to slither out from your question. And, and I am the father of four daughters, and I would be a miserable father if I had a favorite, and I don't. Um, so I will go back and just say, I'm so lucky that there are dozens of interviews that profoundly changed me. I remember interviewing Jackie Robinson's widow, describing how it was possible for her to just survive after Jackie had died prematurely at age 53. If you look at a photograph of him, you're certain he's 80 years old, but the load that he carries for so many of us by being the first black person to go through the door in uh, professional major league baseball um, was just so overwhelming on him. And she just carried a picture of him stealing home, a photograph framed, around from room to room. And I just burst into tears. I'm just, just listening to her. I've had the opportunity to interview um, presidents and, um, and Nobel Prize winners and Pulitzer Prize winners. And so everybody has given a little piece of themselves with a generosity that always amazes me. And, and you're right. You know, I think James Baldwin has a kind of central role. It's not too dissimilar in in many ways to Frederick Douglass, and that if you misread him as someone who is opposed to the United States, you've missed the beauty, as you suggest, of his message, in which, you know, if we consider ourselves exceptional, the, the last best hope of earth, um, Abraham Lincoln suggested, you can't rest on your loyal laurels. You can't just suddenly take away civics and the humanities and 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 limit what we can tell that somebody said you could tell the story of Rosa Parks without mentioning race. That's crazy. If you're exceptional, say you're the best quarterback in the business, um, a Tom Brady, you don't say, oh, okay, I just won the Super Bowl. I don't really have to do anything. I can coast. You actually work harder than anybody else to get better. So if we're exceptional, we have to know exactly where we've been, what we've done right, what we've done wrong, how it's complicated, and how we might be better. And I think these people that come to us, like Frederick Douglass and mostly the 19th century, James Baldwin and mostly the 20th century, give us an opportunity to see ourselves, not uncritically, but with the fierce passion behind it of them understanding what our actual aspirations are. And that's that just, you know, makes you stand up straight. You know, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation now. Because one of the things that I try to do with the show Disrupted is to honor those stories, to honor the people who are willing to share a part of their experiences with me and with our audience, and to still hold that intention that in sharing those stories, it can be painful for people. It can be the question of, will this experience be honored or will it just be a part of another storyline? And yet that power of storytelling to bring us together also raises the question of not just the stories that we tell, but who's telling the story. And I've encountered that, you know, hosting this show. I know that you've encountered that with people questioning, well, is he the person that should tell the the story of Jackie Robinson or Muhammad Ali? How do you think about that as a filmmaker, about your identity, but also the ways that the work can help us better understand identities, experiences, 
And again, bring us together with this power of storytelling. How critical is the identity? Oh, it's so important. And you ask like a central question. And I think I'll start at the end and just say, you know, the, um, the novelist Richard Powers said the, the best arguments in the world uh, won't change a single person's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. And my goodness, all we do is argue right now. So storytelling becomes a vehicle in which you can communicate complexity, not with the intention of forcing somebody to change or to agree with you, but offering them opportunities to see things in a different light. And that's basically the human experience. All we do is tell each other stories. Honey, how was your day? Is basically a demand that you edit what occurred since I last saw you and and put it into a, a story form that is understandable, tragic, humorous, neutral, whatever it might be. So I'm in the business of history and that history includes everyone. I've felt that from the very beginning and you can see that in the very first films that I've worked on. And I have throughout my professional life tried to tell the story of this country in an inclusive way and we've done it. Um, that means talking about race, for example, and telling everybody's story. We do that with teams of producers and editors and advisors who are diverse. And the people in our film from all backgrounds speak to their personal experiences, experts. And we have experts who both are on camera and advise the film from across the world. We, of course, encourage others. And I've worked a great deal with PBS, where all my films are shown on PBS to expand the pool of people that are receiving the funds, that are getting the time uh, to tell the story. I don't accept that only people of a certain particular background can tell certain stories about the past. My, my, I have a distant ancestor, the poet Robert Burns, who in one of his more famous poems said, oh, would some power the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us. And so we're always dependent on on someone's dispassionate eye to to help us understand where we are just as we also need to feel like we have our own voice uh to express that so you have just in a way described my entire the arc of my entire professional life coming up more from my conversation with ken burns as ken his thoughts on recent restrictions to education and accessibility. A citizen is someone who's informed, who understands history, who understands civics, who understands what's going on. I mean, you can take a general audience and you can't find a majority of them that can distinguish between the Declaration, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And later, documentary producer Sue Kim talks about what draws her to particular stories. I'm drawn to the lives of outsiders, and, and I think it's a very common thread in my work. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're talking to disruptors in the world of documentary film. I've been talking with award-winning filmmaker Ken Burns about his career that includes over 30 documentary films and series. One of those films is The Central Park Five. I use that film in a course I teach called The Politics of Punishment. It hasn't become easier to live as an adult. It's become harder. It's always more difficult to do something if you have this huge gap of your life taken away from you. And it's not like just because they said, okay, we are vacating the convictions, that that vacated the whole prison term. That whole prison term happened. It was a reality. We really went through that. That was Dr. Yusuf Salam speaking in the Ken Burns documentary, The Central Park Five. Dr. Salam was just elected to represent Harlem on the New York City Council. I want my students to see the film so that they can understand what it means for someone like Dr. Salam to run for and win elected office after being convicted of a crime that he didn't commit and having powerful figures call for his execution. Ken Burns spoke to me in October before Dr. Salam won the election. When someone wrote to me, Youssef won the Democratic primary, which means he will win the election for uh, city council from representing a part of Harlem uh, in November next month. Um, They called up with an exclamation point and I just said, this is what justice looks like. (laughs) You know, Yusuf Salam has now escaped the specific gravity of this horrific thing that was perpetrated on him and Antron and Kevin and, and Raymond and Corey. And they have escaped and he has done it magnificently. This is what justice looks like. This is what justice looks like. This is, I think, in some ways, what justice feels like. That kind of possibility that is so strong. I'm thinking of your work in the context of all of the attacks. I'm also the mom to a teenager who cannot understand why so many adults want to restrict what she can read, what she can see, and again, what she can feel. What does it mean for you as a person who's a filmmaker and creating this art when you hear about schools trying to restrict the ability to learn history because you are so passionate about learning history? What does that mean for you? It's, it's you know, a predictable and, and periodic assault that always takes place. Human beings have have always wanted the trains to run time, to everything to be orderly and nice. And authoritarians promise that and in some cases can deliver it initially, but then they come for you too. And so you have to realize that for all of the 
you know, the, the mess uh, of democracy, it's, it's absolutely the best system. And part of that, what our founders understood, I'm doing working right now on a very complex, probably the most complex film I'll ever work on, on the American Revolution. They're interested in creating citizens, period. Jefferson in the Declaration, a few lines past the famous ones, um, which revealed his own contradiction as well as our country's contradiction. When he said all men are created equal, he, of course, owned hundreds of slaves. Hundreds of, of human beings were enslaved in his household, and he did nothing about it, uh, although he could distill the Enlightenment. But he, he wrote a, a, a really interesting phrase. He said, all experience has shown that mankind are disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable. He's basically saying, look, this is a totally new way of doing things. And I get it. All of human history up to this point, everybody's had the boot of the authoritarian on their back. Um, and this is going to require a little bit more effort, a little bit more vigilance uh, to make sure that we do this. But human beings backslide and human beings can be convinced that there's a them. You know, there's there's only us, no them. And people perpetually in human history created them in order to have a straw man to set up as the reason why things are not perfect. The reason why things are not perfect is things are not perfect. That's all. And that we are incumbent upon us not to become, if you take away education and you promote superstitions and conspiracies, you become like a peasantry, which is what humanity had been, most of humanity, um, susceptible to lies, susceptible to untruths, to superstitions, to conspiracies, to blaming the other, that the reason why they're caught in this cycle of poverty is because of this group or that group. And so a citizen is someone who's informed, who understands history, who understands civics, who understands what's going on. I mean, you can take a general audience and you can't find a majority of them that can distinguish between the Declaration, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. I mean, this is just foundational. This is like, you know, you put the key in the car and you turn, you know, I mean, it's we're not even don't want to even teach that. We don't teach civics anymore. We're pulling humanities out. Um, there's um, an announcement at the University of North Carolina, which is one of the great, great state public schools, that they will not offer any more honorary degrees in the humanities. And yet you realize that if you build a a, a generation of automatons who know science, technology, engineering, and math, they miss the subtleties of history, of ethics, of comparative religion, of, of um, all the things that are at the heart of what being human is. Um, and so, you know, my work is just a celebration or an attempt to be in a celebration of the complexity of, of humanity. And, oh, by the way, we're all members, <laughs> you know, we're all here. Nobody's, no, everybody's a member. What you just laid out leads to this next question. I, I think you set it up very well. You were quoted last year saying that we are perhaps in the most difficult crisis in American history. Some people may say, oh, that sounds like an exaggeration. What you just laid out for me, the idea that we are taking away education, that we are driven by myth as opposed to fact, that we are training young people, and I use that term training intentionally, training young people 
to think that basic things like a human connection isn't something that should be rewarded or something that should be encouraged. All of that has an impact on the future of our country, our right now, and our state of democracy. As we head into 2024, this key election year, all the things that history tells us could happen if we don't pay attention to it. Why the statement that we are in the most difficult crisis in American history? So I think the three previous great crises, the Civil War, the Depression, and World War II, we can kind of identify, and because they're safely in the past, we can nod and go, yes, again, or I've got a different one, or it's this one, or it's that one. Um, The current, in all of those three, there was never a question of the peaceful transfer of power, free and fair elections, the independence of the judiciary, and this thing that you've suggested about sort of living in a kind of post-truth world, you know, I mean, if you poll Americans, most of them believe that um, the economy was much better in the previous president. It wasn't. It was much, much worse. And um, this this current president, if you'd guessed how many jobs they'd added, they wouldn't say it was above 13 million. That this current president, for example, has the third best legislative accomplishment in the history of the United States. Uh, in the last 100 years after FDR and uh, LBJ, uh, you just wouldn't, you'd hear what the talk shows and what the booths have said or what the disinformation has done. And so you have to be in, as a citizen in a post-truth society, you have to be incredibly suspicious and be more disciplined about where you get your information from. And that becomes important. You know, I, I always tell people just, you know, if you want to know, stop going to the far ends where it's all opinion. Just go read the online New York Times or, or Wall Street Journal or Washington Post or Boston Globe or whatever. You know, there's really great, great newspapers. Watch, uh, you know, or stream a nightly news from one of the three things. And then you're pretty much set with what's actually going on rather than what somebody would like to tell you is going on. And all that does is protect us from becoming that much more susceptible to the emperor who doesn't have any clothes. And everybody's afraid to say, it took a child in that story to say the emperor hasn't any clothes because there's there's willing participants in these lies for people for various reasons. Some of them are scared um, not to call somebody on a big lie. You know, I think about young people today and how in many ways in different formats, they are calling that out and are looking to us to really act on it, but also refusing to wait for action because they say the imperative is so critical. As we come to the close of our conversation, your latest work is a two-part series called The American Buffalo. Given all that we've discussed today, given all that lies ahead in the work that you're doing, What's the lesson that you think viewers should take away from the American Buffalo? Well, see, if you say lesson, and I understand that the films are used in schools every day, hundreds of times a day, the Civil War is shown every single day, parts of it in in, in other films like that. But if you're a storyteller, when you finish it, it's, it's up to everyone to receive it. Some may be changed fundamentally, some may be changed at the edges, some not at all. And that's all okay. That's the law of storytelling rather than the law of argument. Thou shall, you're wrong, I'm right. 
And so it's less a lesson than I think it is understanding just how complex and beautiful our country's story is. And the wider the lens gets, the more complicated and the more interesting and the more inspirational that story becomes. I can tell you that from working on the American Revolution, which is sort of my daily activity for, for months and months and months, um, just how amazingly complex and how little we're taught about our own origin moment. This is it. We This is how we were born. And we are lucky in that many other countries have no idea the exact precise moment. We know exactly the moment when it happened and where and what it was about. And yet we basically, well, oh, fine. Well, we know that then we don't have to know anything else. And the anything else is so extraordinarily interested. That's the thing that I want to say is that the more complex the story, like life, the more interesting and the more beneficial it is to you if you choose to do it. I, I don't want to say, please take this lesson from the buffalo. I do believe that the two episodes of that suggest that there's a third act being written. We've saved the buffalo from extinction after the dreadful tragedy that we inflicted, not just on the buffalo, but the native peoples who needed them for every aspect of their not only material, but spiritual lives. And that is on us the greatest slaughter of wildlife in the history of the world and that's on us and that trauma and damage done to dozens and dozens of native nations that's on us and that healing has to continue to take place but also being just saved in a zoo or in a corral isn't the same as being wild and free and do we have the the will uh, to be able to create the spaces that will return our now silent monoculture of the Great Plains back into the cacophonous American Serengeti that it once was. I so appreciate you for reminding us of the beauty, reminding us of the potential, and really reminding us of the calling to understand our history, to act now in a way that can affirm that. But it's also a reminder that there's so many amazing stories yet to be told. That was award-winning documentary filmmaker, Ken Burns. Coming up, one of the producers of the film, Free Chol Su Lee, explains how a conversation with her mom convinced her to work on the documentary. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about how documentary films can shape the way that we view and understand the world. The documentary Free Chol Su Lee tells the story of a man who is wrongfully convicted of murder and the movement that he inspired. But the movie also delves into the complexities of his life before and after prison and how multiple systems seem to fail him at every turn. But I had a lot of difficulty with English. The school was mostly geared toward Chinese immigrants, and there were no Korean teachers or counselors. One day, another student started a fight with me. They took me to the principal's office. But I couldn't explain that it wasn't my fault, so I had a tantrum. I kicked the principal 
and they charged me with battery. When I first went to Juvenile Hall, I guess I was thinking in Korean that I'm a bad boy now. Started smoking cigarettes, trying to act tough and all that. If you go to jail, you must be a bad person, you know? That was Sebastian Yoon, voicing Chol Soo Lee in the film. Here to join us now is Sue Kim, one of the producers of the film. Welcome to Disrupted. Hi, so nice to be here. You know, before I talk about this documentary, this very powerful documentary that you were part of, I'm curious about your overall approach. You tell stories that are often overlooked. You tell stories that are powerfully affirming of community and stories that really challenge us collectively to think about our role. What draws you into the particular stories that you're telling because you are such a powerful storyteller? Um, one of the things that has always interested me is like the stories of migration. Um, when um, when I was um, one years old, my family immigrated to New York from South Korea. And being an immigrant myself, I'm drawn to the lives of outsiders. And, and I think it's a very common thread in my work. Being drawn to the lives of outsiders brings us to this documentary. And you're telling the story of a man who was viewed as an outsider in many different spaces throughout his life. An outsider, someone coming to the U.S. as an immigrant, an outsider even while he was in the United States and the kinds of communities that he navigated through. Share with our listeners why tell this particular story, because it is so powerful and yet still so overlooked. So Frichel Suli tells the story of like a very significant moment not only in Asian American history, but also in American history. Yet, as you said, it's very, it's little known. And um, there was a real risk that it would stay buried in history. And, you know, we could not let that happen. And I think that's because Chosu Lee was no model minority. And when a group of people took up his cause, like his, he was a poor immigrant kid with a criminal record, yet he inspired a landmark nationwide movement that boldly fought for his freedom and for justice. And I think about this documentary, and I'll, I'll share with you, I said this with my production team before we started. This was really hard to watch, not because the situations were unfamiliar. We have long known how the criminal justice system has failed people. It was difficult to watch because this is also a documentary about the various systems that have failed, whether it is a system that is meant to support young people, a system that is meant to give people access to meaningful mental health care and support, or the collective system of not really addressing what happens to people once they leave. And yet, even within that story and that experience, you also introduce us to pioneering journalists like K.W. Lee, whose reporting was critical of not only telling the story of Chol Su Lee, but also telling the story and power of community coming together. All of that leads me to this next question, which is, you know, one of the things we talk a lot in this show is about representation, not just the stories we tell, but who is telling the story and the power of determining that. What did it mean for you to be a part of an Asian American team telling the story of this man who was so overlooked? Why was that important to have that level of representation? Well, you know, it's um, 
I believe myself to be someone who knows about at least some things. And I have to say, like, it was this story was so epic and so um, amazing. And like the fact that I didn't know about it, I was like, what the hell is going on? So, you know, I, I actually my I always go back to my mother, like when I, you know, I'm in this like sort of quandary about what to do. And I called my mom and I said, hey, mom, you know, when we immigrated to the U.S., like, you know, do you remember like this story about this about this man named Chosu Lee who was wrongfully incarcerated? And she said, you know, like I actually do, because um, when I immigrated, I was very lonely and I and I was I really longed for um media in Korean. And so I read the newspaper cover to cover like all the time. And um, and she said she followed the case. And then she said to me that she realized in reading these articles that um, life in America was going to be very difficult. And um, and that is actually the reason, like I said, OK, I've, I've got to do this. And. And I, you know, and I think working on this film for me is to ensure that Chosu Lee's story lives on and that the legacy of the movement carries forward inspiring new generations of activists, journalists, and people of conscience to work together towards creating a more just society for all. There's a power in this film because of the intergenerational storytelling that happens, those reminders across generations of experience. There's a healing that comes through this documentary. And one of the pieces that really stuck with me, and I would say troubled my soul, is that even after Chosu Lee is released, right, wrongfully convicted on this crime of murder, is released, he never received any compensation from the state of California, never received an apology. And as someone who has worked quite a bit with formerly incarcerated people, particularly with those who were wrongfully convicted and later exonerated, what most people don't realize is that if you're wrongfully convicted and released, you don't have services. You don't have the kinds of support that someone who may have been released on parole received. And so you take someone who's had this very broken experience, release them back into community with not even, sorry, we messed up, and then expect them to fend for themselves. What do you think the experience of Charles Su Lee tells us about American society and the way that our systems and structures may be failing people that we've been a part of? In the film, we it was so important to us that the audience could better understand why um, Charles Su Lee struggled so much um, after his release. And one of the um, sort of the uh, sort of narrative um, choices that we made in the filmmaking process was working with a young man named Sebastian Yoon. Sebastian was a, um, he's formerly incarcerated um, Korean American young man. And um, he's also featured in a documentary series called College Behind Bars. And uh, honestly, like when I watched the film, like I was surprised because I have my own minority myth that there was a Korean American, you know, represented in the film. And I, I felt that like he could help us bring that sort of like that pain of incarceration into the film and into the narrative. And one of the things he Sebastian wanted to work on the film because Chosu was no longer here to represent himself. And he really wanted people to understand like how difficult it was for Chosu. And as for myself, like I think like I was incredibly moved by Sebastian and um. And after hearing him speak, 
I felt like he was like the embodiment of Chosuli. There's a powerful scene. I won't give it away because I want people to watch this. There's this powerful scene toward the end where you see Chelsea Lee walking down the sidewalk and sort of struggling as he's going upstairs. And it felt to me that physically and visually, this was the embodiment of all that he had been through throughout his life, the struggle even before he was incarcerated and these struggles that happened after. And it was also a stunning and arresting reminder of the continuing struggle. But there's also through that, this piece of hope and this piece of optimistic belief that in telling these stories and sharing these experiences, we can build something greater out of that. A lot of your films have been picked up by PBS and Independent Lens. What do you see as the power of public media to kind of foster that hope and telling our stories, the very diverse representations that break down not just the model minority myth, but also that sort of monolithic view that we have. What's the power of public media in doing that? I have worked on a lot of shows on um, public media. And one of the reasons for it is, and you know, on public television, there is public broadcasting has a, has a mandate to um, serve the underserved. And I feel that like, you know, in, in a commercial entities, like they're not interested in things that do not create revenue. And they were, people were not interested in these stories. And so um, the, I was like, you know what, like, I'm just gonna, you know, figure out a way to tell these stories and have like the biggest reach possible. And PBS does have a very large reach because it's free and it's available for, you know, everyone to watch. And I believe in that like equality and like, you know, just availability of, of media. So I'm very proud to like have um, Fritjol Suli on public television. I'm wondering what you would say making this film taught you about yourself. What did you learn from doing this? It was a very difficult um, time finishing this film um, because of the lack of resources. Um, just also the pain, you know, that one, you know, faces like when you look at like yourself, your people, like your um, everything. And I really feel that to increase awareness of um, racial inequalities within the criminal justice system. And I wanted to inspire local communities to support reform efforts and also to support just the people who are, you know, re-entering, you know, after a long time, you know, long incarceration. So it's something that I think was like very, that was very important to me. And I hope that people can watch this film and, you know, understand that. My last question to you is, is is sort of bringing us full circle to where we started about what inspires you and the power of the stories that you tell. And my question is simply this. What do you think we owe to Charles Su Lee to really honor the memory, to honor the the challenges of his experience, but also the thousands of others like him whose names we may not know, but whose experiences within our community stick with us? What do we owe to them? Um, you know, this always kind of gets me choked up thinking about this, but I think what we, we need to, we, we owe them compassion, you know, and we owe 
compassion and and embrace people as they you know try to come back into society and we need to understand the full scope of the experiences um that one goes through trying to survive in prison and i hope that um the film embraced this and incorporated this into the narrative i think you know this but i want to just say it how much we appreciate this film and how much we appreciate the reminder that we owe people compassion and how we show up every day to affirm mm -hmm. that. Sue Kim is one of the producers of the documentary film, Free Chol Su Lee, that tells the story of a man wrongfully convicted of murder and the movement for his release. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Letitia Peters and Joey Morgan. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Let's keep telling our stories. <laughs>